African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. This is a very significant historical election. This crisis is still damaging, especially Finnish and European economies very hardly, and that's an important reason to get more and more co- cooperation. And uh, what we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of uh, Tiwonge and uh, Stephen, and also we see Malawi violating its international commitments. Well, the position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting for marine species in particular. African Dialogue, a talk show where we cover anything and everything. Good morning, it's the 10th of June 2015 and you're listening to Channel Africa, your gateway to Africa and the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Benjamin Mushatama. You're listening to African Dialogue where we zoom into some of the pivotal issues that are taking place on the continent and you're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. If you're listening to us on the DSTV radio bouquet, it's on the channel 902. Thank you for streaming us if you're online on W www.channelafrica.co.za Well, today we're going to look at the response of the electricity crisis in South Africa from the country's civil society. So today, really, we're speaking to civil society. What do they think of the electricity crisis in South Africa? And we know that the electricity problem on the continent is not just a problem for South Africa, but for also other African countries. So that's our focus today. Let's move on. Let's get our news from En Musa. In the headlines, civic groups in Burundi reject a UN facilitator of talks between the government and those opposed to a third term for President Pierre Nkurunziza. Eritrea dismisses a United Nations report alleging human rights abuses and political and economic stability returns to Côte d'Ivoire. Very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. Burundian civic groups that rejected a United Nations facilitator of talks between the government and those opposed to a third term for President Pierre Nkurunziza say they feel he backs the president. Several civic groups have written a joint letter to UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon expressing opposition to the role of Algerian diplomat Sayed Jinnit. The special envoy for the Great Lakes has for weeks been at the helm of a UN-led political dialogue in the hopes of creating conditions for an election environment conducive to a free, fair and inclusive process. Sharon Bryce Peace reports. For now, the UN is sticking with their man who will travel along with the UN's Deputy Secretary General to the AU summit in South Africa later this week. But in the absence of a political solution after weeks of mediation, the special envoy will continue to come under pressure to take a firm view on whether President Nkurunziza should appear on the ballot in a presidential election that could now happen as early as July 15th. 
Eritrea has dismissed a United Nations human rights report that describes alleged extrajudicial killings, torture and sexual slavery. The foreign ministry says suggestions that the Asmara government committed human rights violations against its own people are totally unfounded and without merit. The government has not ever addressed the specific allegations made in Monday's UN Human Rights Commission report, which followed a year-long investigation. Islamic State militants claim to have seized full control of Libya's coastal city of Sirta and a steam power plant near the city from the Libya Dawn militia. The U.S.-based site intelligence group quotes a report in which a division of the terrorist group calling itself the Tripoli province says the terrorist had seized the last locations of Libya Dawn militants in the northern city. The militants, which emerged in Libya by releasing a video in February that showed the beheading of 21 Egyptian Christians seized the civilian airport in Sirt last month. There's been an improvement in the overall security and stability of Côte d'Ivoire. Briefing the United Nations Security Council Special Representative of the Secretary-General for Côte d'Ivoire, Ashato Mandoado, said despite the progress, there are some hardliners calling for demonstrations. The UN envoy says in four months, Ivorians will be heading to the polls to choose the next president in an environment very different from 2010. Much has been accomplished since the last election, which was marred by terrible violence. Stability is being progressively maintained, the economy is growing, and Ivorians are able to pursue their affairs in a peaceful environment. While political disagreements remain, there is more and more national consensus for constructive dialogue. Nevertheless, some opposition hardliners are calling for more and more demonstrations. And finally, military top brass from Nigeria and surrounding countries have met to thresh out plans to take on Boko Haram. This after the militants struck again in the country's far northeast, killing 15 people. The meeting of chiefs of defense staff from Nigeria, Nigeria, Chad and Cameroon, plus a high-level military official from Benin, came before talks between heads of state and government tomorrow. The military meeting was held to determine strategies for a new African Union-backed regional force against the rebels. Recapping the top stories, civic groups in Burundi reject a UN facilitator of talks between the government and those opposed to a third term for President Pierre Kurunziza. Eritrea dismisses a United Nations report alleging human rights abuses and political and economic stability returns to Côte d'Ivoire. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, right here on uh, our frequency, 9625 kilohertz, on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. Well, civil society and unions of South Africa met last week to discuss the electricity shortage in the country and debated various aspects on the implications of the problem. While many called for the South African Electricity Public Utility, ESCOM, to be inclusive in discussions to solve the problem, the ousted Secretary-General of the Congress of Trade Unions, Zulinzi Mavavi, called for a mass protest campaign against South Africa's power crisis. 
Now, the various stakeholders in civil society gathered at the conference last week under the theme, Will This Be a Winter Without Power? Now, to look at uh, some of the views that came out of the conference, because uh, energy is something that we've been speaking about here on uh, the program for many, many programs, and I think it's a good follow-up to look at some of the concerns of civil society. On the line, we've got Ted Blom, who is a partner of Blom Consulting and Training. He was at the conference looking at the roots of the ESCOM crisis and the need for a judicial inquiry. Nombule Lunyatel also joins us as a spokesperson from Equal Education. She delivered a presentation looking at the theme, Electricity Supply to Schools, How Outages and Inadequate Electricity Infrastructure Affect Learning and Teaching. And finally, but not least, we've got Lerato Marichele, who is the Earth Life Africa's Johannesburg Program Officer. She was uh, looking at uh, the theme, ESCOM and Environmental Injustice. Now, I want to start with you, Ted, looking at uh, this particular civil society conference you were speaking about the issue of the root of the ESCOM crisis tell us a little bit about where you started your conversation with this particular theme well it started my um, investigation started after last year's uh, interim results presentation by ESCOM uh, as, as you might, might not know I have worked at ESCOM uh, either inside or alongside ESCOM for the last 30 years and um, I uh, noted that in the interim results presentation, uh, there were a lot of omissions by Eskom's uh, uh, presiding officers. And uh, I then uh, took the effort to drop them down, um, uh, my queries, and uh, posed them to Eskom. And they said to me, listen, uh, um, those are all technical issues. Why don't we meet uh, straight after this presentation? And uh, we'll badly address those issues with you. Well, I waited until after the presentation, and then I looked for the Eskom personnel, and they'd run away. Um, what, what, uh, the question that I've raised uh, are really seven issues, and there are seven critical issues. And my point at the uh, conference last week was that any company faced with only one of these seven issues would probably fall over or struggle to survive. Uh, I mean, the ESCOM's got seven of these issues, and there are more issues, but these are the core, root causes for ESCOM's current predicament. And, and, and I call them as coal. Uh, ESCOM runs out of coal beginning this year. Uh, they've known about it for many years. I, in fact, did a report for them in 2006 uh, where we highlighted the fact that they would be running out of coal at the old power stations as from this year. So we're spot on. And when we put that to Mr. Malefe, he, he denied it. Uh, yet the minister affirmed it in Parliament on a, on a written, uh, in answer to a written inquiry. The second issue, which is still in denial about, is water. They've got massive water shortages at Madupi. And uh, those water shortages, according to my information, will not be sorted out before 2023. So any person telling you that the duty will solve our electricity woes soon uh, is telling you a lie, because they will not be able to run that power station at full volume uh, prior to 2023. The next issue is rail. As I said, the uh, old power stations are running out of coal. The next coal field that's available is up in the Waterberg, 600 kilometers away. But there's no rail network, so uh, there's, no, there's no ways to get the coal from the mines to the um, power stations cheaply. Uh, and if they want to do it by truck, they'll have to get 15,000 trucks racing through Pretoria and Johannesburg on a daily basis, which is not uh, sustainable. Uh, the next issue is capacity. Uh, Eskimo's paid for uh, Madupi uh, more than the cost of 10 power stations, so they don't have enough money to replace all the aging power stations. Uh, so they've got a massive capacity problem. Uh, they need to build another 30 gigawatts, which is roughly equivalent to what Eskom was about 10 years ago. They need to deliver that in the next uh, 15 years, and that's just not possible. 
if we're struggling to deliver two power stations simultaneously, there's no way they can do six power stations uh, simultaneously between now and uh, 2030. Uh, the next item was cash. Eskom is desperately out of cash. They indicated they need $255 billion. Uh, urgently, uh, my calculation, and uh, I'm telling you this number because, I've, as I said, I've worked alongside Eskom for more than 30 years. Uh, my estimate is that they need over $500 billion, and even that number is conservative. So they also lie to Treasury as to how much money they need. Uh, the, the, the next issue is that uh, their costs are running uh, uh, way ahead of schedule. Uh, Eskom's coal costs are increasing by 25% a year. It hasn't been stopped, it, uh, and, and it's largely uh, a manageable uh, exercise, but Eskom doesn't seem to have the will to manage it. And, and lastly, uh, you know, uh, I, I just think that uh, the organization leadership is also in the vacuum. They've lost four senior leaders in the organization, and they've tried to replace it with one. There's no one person, in my, not to my best of my knowledge, as the capacity, the knowledge, and the intellect mm, mm. such a big organization around. Mm. Well, let me move on to Lerato, because you are also having your own views in terms of ESCOM, and also the issue of uh, your t- your theme was environmental injustice. What were the areas that you covered there at uh, the conference? Uh, a very interesting conversation in terms of what we know is a green economy and how we can consolidate that to some of the solutions. Lerato, let us know your views on what you highlighted at this particular conference. Thank you, Benjamin. Um, what I've covered uh, at the conference was the issue around um, the crisis looking at it in terms of um, not only that the crisis is about the Black House, but also the crisis is about other crises as well. Like, for instance, the environmental crisis. We're looking uh, right now the issue around climate change. Um, there's a water crisis um, in Bumalanga and also the climate change crisis will cause also the food crisis and also the air pollution crisis. Um, we, I also uh, covered the issues around energy poverty, that um, around 30% of South Africans still don't have access to electricity. And how are we going to sort out that uh, problem? Because it's a, it's a crisis on its own. Mm. Also, let, let me move on to Nombulelo because we'll speak about some of these other areas from equal education. You're speaking at the theme of electricity supply to schools, how outages and inadequate in electricity infrastructure affect learning and teaching. Tell us a little bit about your presentation, Nombulelo. I think we made exactly that point, that um, the, the electricity problems in school is directly linked to the infrastructure problems in our schools. So, for example, we are told there's about 4,000 schools that have no electricity supply right now, um, and we obviously know that with the with the law on the norms and standards for school infrastructure, um, these schools are supposed to have access to electricity by the year 2016. And the issue we raised sharply was the fact that there are still no plans that we have seen as to how this is meant to happen. But also, I mean, you know, there are some bright spots, like when we did, um, for example, our social audit summit in Gauteng, um, we audited about 200 schools. All schools in Gauteng that we audited had access to electricity. Of course, there's a problem that um, not all of them had constant electricity. Um, there is the issue of load shedding, so they didn't always have access to electricity, and that continues to be a problem. But an even bigger problem is the fact that some of our schools, um, particularly our township schools, are in arrears when it comes to um, the electricity bill because... Um, 
you know, if the Section 21 school, they get a certain amount of money um, to sort of um, cater for everything, to cater for the learners, to cater for maintenance, etc., etc. But, you know, our principals are telling us that they can't stretch that money. And so we saw, for example, in the city of Tane um, last year, where it sort of cut the electricity to all these schools and held the provincial government at ransom so that they could pay them about 10 million rand. So there is also that problem. But I think, you know, what we need to recognize is the fact that, um, you know, this electricity problem is particularly linked to the infrastructure problems in our schools. So, for example, I mean, some of our schools have it better than others. Our township and rural schools are the ones that are really suffering. This affects their teaching and learning every day. Obviously, this affects the educational outcomes directly every day. Staying with you, Nombulelo, in terms of looking at that particular issue, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm too old school because when I was in school, especially high school and primary school, it was just a world of books, blackboards, chalk and paper and pens. There wasn't really much about doing anything in terms that had a direct influence on electricity itself. So I know that this is just a, a limited view that I have, but how does it directly impact the student himself or herself, the fact that there wouldn't be electricity or during classes there would be load shedding. Will there be any implications directly to the student? Well, absolutely. I mean, for example, what about the learners that are studying um, IT in school? How do they access the computers if they have computers in the school? Um, Laboratories themselves sometimes need electricity to do their experiments. I mean, it's in many ways, but also some classrooms don't have the type of infrastructure that allows natural lighting in. Some of the schools need actual electricity for you to even able to see the blackboard. But for example, in Gauteng, um, the NEC, as we know, introduced paperless classrooms. And this um, means that so it's not about books and, um, and chalkboards anymore. It's about the iPad and it's about having um, access to whatever material is on that iPad. And partly, I mean, actually, a lot of it requires that the learners be able to access, um, be able to charge their iPads. But again, I mean, if they don't have access to electricity at school, but also don't have access to electricity at home because there's been load shedding, they couldn't charge their iPads the night before, um, there's a problem. This obviously affects their teaching and learning. Well, you are listening to Channel Africa. This is African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Mushatam. I'm looking at uh, speaking with civil society about their response to the electricity crisis in South Africa. And many times we hear the voice of ESCOM and more, many of the times we do hear them speaking about how they're responding. But what are the implications in terms of what civil society thinks? And really, we're just unpacking the mind of civil society and what they think about uh, this particular problem in South Africa. But hey, we know this is a continental problem. The question we asking on the program today for you what are the real reasons we as a continent are struggling with power outages with a power crisis it's happening not just here in South Africa but we know that Nigeria also has a problem in other African countries let us know your thoughts on this question the real reasons why Africa is struggling with power outages what are your thoughts SMS us on plus two seven O seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. That's O seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Start your SMS with plus two seven. That's O plus two seven O seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. If you are uh, uh, speaking to us outside the uh, continent, start your message with plus two seven. Now let's uh, take a quick break and then we'll come back to this conversation. I'm going to come back and look at the issue of the energy mix in terms of what the South African government is. In implementing is it doing enough and uh, is it a good strategy the time right now is 20 minutes past 11 o'clock central african time
would like to get to know you, our listener. So, we are asking you to tell us the country you're in and how you listen to the station. Is it via shortwave, internet or satellite? And what do you enjoy listening to? You can SMS us at plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five, or email us. It's at info at channelafrica.org. You can also tell us via Facebook or tweet us on the handle at Channel Africa Numerical 1. Or write to us at the address P.O. Box 91313 Auckland Park, Johannesburg, 2006 Republic of South Africa. We look forward to hearing from you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, civil society was meeting last week to discuss the electricity shortage in South Africa and debated various aspects on the implications of the problem. And, and also, we doing that today, looking at this particular conference, we've got Ted Blom, who is uh, the partner of Blom Consulting and Training. And uh, we also have Nombule Lunyatel, who's the spokesperson from Equal Education, and Lerato Marajelo, who is uh, Earth Life Africa, Johannesburg's program officer. Now, I want to come back to you, Ted in terms of looking at uh, the issue of the energy mix that the South African government is implementing. Do you think that uh, this is a good strategy and enough is actually done to complement green methods of uh, electricity generation? Um, You know, uh, I also do mining and energy advisory work around the globe. And uh, what really strikes me about uh, the uh, South African situation uh, is that... um, I'm absolutely amazed by the, the ignorance or the naivety of uh, the players, um, and, and primarily because uh, this Eskom problem has been coming on for a long time. As I said, the coal issue, uh, I was part of the team that uh, forecasted in 2006, uh, that's uh, more than eight years ago, and there's just been no action on the side of uh, the players that should have uh, grabbed the button and run it. Um, the other issue is that we seem to think that we have forever to sort this problem out. Uh, this electricity problem and energy problem in Southern Africa, which doesn't just affect South Africa, it affects the whole region, uh, it's going to kill industries, it's going to kill jobs, it's going to put people on the streets and uh, have uh, massive unemployment implications. And yet the solution uh, that I put forward uh, you know, uh, more than two months ago, uh, and have yet to be contacted by any of the players, is very simple. This problem can be sorted out within six to 12 months. Uh, Germany had a similar problem, they sorted it out in 12 months, and what is the answer? The answer is solar. Uh, now, the price of solar has uh, come down by more, more than a factor of four over the last five years. So it's cost now a quarter of what it cost five years ago. And, uh, and because each person will it's a distributed uh, uh, delivery system, everybody will go to his own installer. There's no bottlenecks. And uh, the sunlight in South Africa is particularly good, and the technology has improved by a factor of more than uh, two over the last years as well. So it's actually cost-efficient. Um, it would have cost 200,000 rand, uh, 200, rand to put solar up into a house uh, two, three years ago. It now costs, for the equivalent output, less than 75,000 rand. All we need is for the regulator to change one regulation, and that is to allow households to sell electricity into the grid uh, and get credited for that uh, delivery. 
And uh, Bob's aunt, uh, the South African population, of which is about six to seven million uh, bricks and mortar structures, can immediately put solar onto their house. It will take them between six and 12 months, and they can feed in between eight and 10 gigawatts uh, of power, which will more than sort out the problem in this uh, current uh, crisis. And yet, you know, I seem to be speaking to, uh, uh, to, uh, to a wall. Uh, nobody seems to be listening other than the, the hapless people who are affected by this thing and uh, mm. are feeling the bitter pains of uh, bad planning by government and uh, the stakeholders in this area. Well, Ted, do you think we have the capacity to embark on such a project? Do we have the resources, as you were highlighting, that ESCOM in itself is struggling in terms of finances? Well, if you do the distributed solar model, uh, you, you know, you don't need any capital uh, because uh, it's a bankable uh, plan. The banks will provide you with a bond uh, so that you can uh, put solar on your roof, and your payback will be uh, give you about a return of 20% per annum. And as I said, uh, you will go to your solar installer. I'll go to my solar installer. There's no bottlenecking. Uh, everybody can do it virtually simultaneously. There's no need to change the infrastructure on the grid. All that happens is the meter will run in reverse. And uh, let me just put it on a technical basis. Uh, it's, it's suitable for people, most households, who get single-phase electricity. It's obviously not suitable for uh, three-phase electricity. You need additional uh, equipment to, uh, to to feed back into the grid. But for the average household, it's not a problem. There's no extra uh, load on the system. There's no complications. It's dead simple. You put up the solar, you connect it to the grid. You need one electrician to do that connection. The whole installation can happen within two or three days. It really is not a complicated issue. And as I said, we can relieve the problem on the grid and the joblessness and all these other issues within six months. Now let me go to you, Lerato, in terms of looking at uh, the, what we're talking about, this energy mix, uh, uh, looking at uh, using green methods of uh, generating electricity. Is the government, in your view, doing enough in terms of that? Because they always speak about that particular term, energy mix, energy mix. It seems to be a new theme that has taken over the whole conversation and seems to actually uh, dominate the conversation as as though the government is doing enough in, in order to implement this uh, green culture within the uh, economy of our country. What's your view there, Lerato? Yeah, um, what I'm thinking is that, um, I mean, with the electricity crisis itself, I mean, this is an opportunity for us as a country um, to go um, the just transition away from the dirty energy that we continue to use, um, which is expensive fossil fuels and unhealthy at the same time. Um, our energy mix or electricity mix needs to shift from coal-fired uh, coal power stations or fired electricity um, towards renewable energy. Um, and while the existing coal-fired power station must implement also the pollution abatement uh, measures, uh, for instance, if we say that Currently, we have put in 4,000 uh, megawatts of uh, renewable energy to the, to the, to the mix. Uh, but if we say that um, 100 or 10,000 gigawatts of renewable energy, uh, this will reduce ESCOM coal-fired uh, power generation emissions by 6.4%, um, which also will save the lives of poor children in, in the Haifal region, where they are I mean, the issue around pollution there, it's dire and, you know, it's, it's really unnecessary. 
Yeah, well, I'm most interested in this whole issue of uh, the idea that was raised in the particular conference on uh, creating a more inclusive dialogue where the government and uh, the power utility ASCOM can be more inclusive. And that was kind of the issue that was raised at the conference, having a more inclusive discussion to solve these issues. Uh, Coming to you, Nombulelo, I mean, how important is that, that a government should actually sit alongside civil society and actually engage especially in these different themes because there are different implications for one problem such as electricity. Your views? It's absolutely very important, but also, um, you know, I think that the idea of cooperative governance is in any case to engage um, different stakeholders in society. That includes civil society, and I think that um, sometimes government takes a very antagonistic um, posture towards civil society, and often that's not helpful. Um, we have often wanted to engage the Department of Basic Education um, on their plans on fixing school infrastructure, and of course this speaks to electricity. Um, in our engagements, though, we also we also sympathize with the Department of Basic Education because their jurisdiction is education, um, but they have to be speaking to the Department of Water, they have to be speaking to um, the department, you know, the department that deals with electricity, etc. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly complex. Um, and so, you know, we have often wanted to side with the Department of Education on those matters, and it's so much easier if the Department of um, the different government departments were engaging with civil society and we would tell them um, some of our problems. But also, you know, we have often played that role of being the eyes and ears of government where they are unable to reach. Um, and that is something that our social audit summit did. It was really raise um, eyebrows about what is going on in terms of school infrastructure um, in the Harbing province. And those things are not only helpful to us as society, but helpful to government itself um, to be able to understand and see what is actually going on on the ground. I suppose they can't always be on the ground. And um, civil society, particularly um, us community-based organizations, are always able to really touch base with what's going on. Ted, in terms of your conversations with ESCOM, it seems like there's been a lot of resistance in terms of that kind of response that you've been getting as you highlight. And I know we don't have ESCOM on, on, on the line, but I don't want us to accuse them of anything. But the reason why I'm asking this question is uh, how can we create platforms whereby actually there is an engagement with civil society more from uh, governmental institutions such as ESCOM? Because it's very important for that dialogue to take place for us to reach a certain consensus and move forward in a quicker pace? Well, the platform that exists at the moment is the NERSA platform, via the public hearings which they have every once in a while. Uh, I've, I've given testimony to, uh, to three of those, and it's actually, you know what, if it's used correctly, it's actually a very useful platform because it, it makes sure that uh, the people... Um, we do present uh, are properly prepared and they stick to the context, and, and, and we should have that. We should have that platform actually play out every year, rather than only when ESCOM applies for a price increase. And then my my my, my problem at the moment is that um, uh, that platform, uh, whilst it allows for people to vent their their, their uh, opinions or, 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 or advice, uh, it doesn't have an independent method to evaluate that advice or that comment or that opinion. Uh, and, I mean, that's where it goes to where you talked about the government's uh, energy mix that they're talking about. I mean, the government's hell-bent on this nuclear one trillion uh, rand uh, transaction. 
Uh, the fact of the matter is that that transaction, they follow that. Uh, it, will, it will come when it's too late. Uh, the earliest they can deliver nuclear, even under the best scenarios, and just remember, what nobody is saying is they haven't even done the EIAs, and they can't do the EIAs until they've chosen the technology. But the best scenario is 15 years. In 15 years' time, all the businesses are dead because they haven't got energy. So this NERSA platform should actually be used on a regular basis. It should be an open discussion, and there should be a measure to actually evaluate the context of people's contributions. Because these guys uh, listen to all our contributions, they then go into a dark room, and they come out with an abracadabra solution, which ignores a lot of what has actually been said at these platforms. Uh, for instance, the community uh, voice is not uh, adequately heard. And then we, that's why we see stupid adjudication of you know, 45% price increases, 25% price increases, 16% price increases. And then when the president interferes, you know, it comes down to 8% because it's an election year. How, how do they manage to get it down by half when it's an election year and other years, like uh, at the moment, we're sitting with a 25% proposed increase? I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Well, that's what we're going to look at, uh, looking at the issue that was highlighted by the president of the country, uh, Jacob Zuma. He was actually speaking about actually starting up an inquiry at looking at some of the root problems. Uh, is, n- is enough being done to look at that particular inquiry? Has anything happened to establish that particular inquiry? And so, if so, what have the outcomes been? And today we're speaking to civil society, looking at uh, their concerns about uh, the issue of the power crisis, specifically in, in South Africa. But I've been saying since the beginning of the program that the issue of power outages and the electricity crisis is not just a South African phenomenon, but it's really, really an African phenomenon. And also it's becoming slowly but surely an international concern as well. The question I'm asking today on the program, and you can respond to us, and we're asking, what are the real reasons why Africa is struggling with power outages? Let us know your thoughts by SMSing us on plus two seven zero seven nine six nine five. Seven nine three zero. If you're outside uh, uh, South Africa, that's the number plus two seven zero seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. If you're within South Africa, just uh, SMS us to zero uh, seven nine, same number six nine five seven nine three zero. Without that plus two seven extension. And uh, let's uh, take a quick break. Or we'll look at some of the concerns that are being brought by our different uh, guests on our program today. But also, we need to move on into an area of solution, an area where we can actually sit around the table as a country, as a continent, say, hey, how do we address these particular issues? Uh, thank you for joining us. If you're joining us online, it's on www.channelafrica.co.za on our DSTV bouquet. You're listening to us on Channel 902. And thank you for listening to us on your radio set. If you continue to, that's on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. This is African Dialogue. I'm Benjamin Mushatama. South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. 
Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, this is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Uh, this is African Dialogue, the program you're listening to right now, coming to you Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. And I'm um, always with you, Benjamin Mushatam, on this particular program. And today we're looking at the response of civil society to the electricity crisis in South Africa. And I'm asking you the question, what are the real reasons we as a continent are struggling with power outages? We've heard some of the issues that are taking place on the continent and sometimes here in South Africa. Africa. I, I want to hear from you. What, what do you think of this particular conversation we're having today? SMS us on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. That's plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. If you're just in South Africa listening to us, it's on oh seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Now, looking at uh, some of these concerns, Lerato, the idea of creating an inquiry into the root problems that we're facing and uh, have we actually advanced into that particular arena? Because we can't solve solutions without actually finding what the problem is. We can't create uh, actually a, a cure if we don't know what uh, the symptoms are and what the disease is. Where are we with that as South Africa, Lerato? Um, yeah, thanks uh, again. Yeah, I mean, we can't really solve our problems um, the way we have created them. Um, we need to really find the solution for Africa and the solution for South Africa. Um, I mean, really, you know, the way we're doing things, um, like we hearing that the 608 uh, reactors are coming. And, you know, this, this, is, this is, I mean, we have so much of, of resources, the, 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 the renewable energy resource that we can use um, and you ask yourself, why are we rushing to, towards this high costly um, energy uh, mix that we want, want to use? Um, I think that the commission of inquiry it, it is um, required to really find out what, what has put us to this far and how can we really move forward. And not to repeat the same mistakes that we are in this situation uh, because of them. So I think it is, it is necessary. Ted, your views there on an inquiry? Because you spoke about this as well during the conference, the need for a judicial inquiry. Yes, certainly. I've, uh, I've raised this on a number of forums, uh, uh, on TV, on radio, and uh, also at the uh, conference last week. And I think uh, we're slowly getting a bit of momentum on this thing. The problem is that uh, the current management of ESCOM are relatively new. And and this problem uh, that we're ESCOM started going off the rails actually emanates from uh, decisions taken around about 2000, uh, which is 15 years ago. And uh, the only reason I'm aware of it is because I've been following this thing, as I said, for the last 30 years. Um, and uh, But it seems to me this uh, call for an inquiry is falling on deaf ears at the moment. And you know what? I think we need to keep up with it because I'm also aware, and I've put it publicly, you can go and Google it, I'm aware of massive, massive, massive discrepancies in uh, the Eskom uh, governance structure, uh, which amounts to billions and billions of rands, which have been wasted or ferreted away. And that's why Eskom comes with all these cost increases all the time that are ridiculous. Um, but it seems to me that uh, this government is not keen on uh, transparency and uh, meaningful dialogue with the citizens. 
and and that will eventually have uh, will lead us to paying the mm. price, mm. Uh, one way or the other. Mm. Um, in, in either massive uh, suffering by the people until uh, they're not happy anymore, or uh, whatever. But um, Ted, how would this? this yeah, Ted, how would this judicial inquiry actually work? I mean, what? What 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 are we talking about when we say we want a judicial inquiry to look at the electricity crisis? I mean, would you get independent investigators? How how would that particular see itself unfolding? Well, I think it would run very much along the line of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission or any other commission of inquiry. We appoint a panel of judges, uh, uh, people with, uh, with uh, hopefully some good measure of credibility. And then you have evidence leaders. And I volunteer to be an evidence leader because I'm aware of a lot of evidence that uh, needs to be uh, be brought to the surface. And I'm sure there are other competent evidence leaders as well who are aware of uh, things. And the, the evidence leaders would also open up to the public uh, so that uh, they can also raise irregularities or hardships or issues uh, that need to be aired in public. And the evidence leaders have then professionally prepared the case and uh, bring it to the inquiry, you know, in a very uh, judicial, uh, correctly, uh, uh, transparent and, uh, and open manner. And, uh, and hopefully then the, at the end of that we form a new picture as to what the actual reality is. Because at the moment not even Eskins are aware of what the reality is. And even the ministers complain that Eskin can't tell her what the reality is. So if those people with their hands on the levers of power don't know what the reality is, how the hell does anybody else know what the reality is? So that's why the only way forward is a commission of inquiry. And the South Africans need to demand it. Uh, really, uh, I'm not uh, into major uh, um, noise-making, but this is one critical issue. What people don't realize is Eskom's impact on the economy is massive. If Eskom falls over, 80% of South African industries will fall over within a month. They will die. Well, I need to wrap it up, and I love always kind of coming back to solutions and coming back to the issue of uh, uh, actually, um, I don't know, we've lost someone on the line. Do we, do we have all of you there? Are you there with us? Okay, I think we're struggling with our lines there. Um, let's take a quick break and see where we're having a problem. I think someone has just given us a problem there with our lines just in a few minutes. Let's just see if we can just take a quick break, and then we'll come back. Well, we're about to run out of time, so let's just uh, uh, just come back to this conversation. And I don't know who is on the line, but let me check who's with us on the line. Ted, are you still there with us? Nombulelo, are you there with us? I'm still here. Okay, Nombulelo, uh, let's just wrap it up with you in terms of the solutions that uh, and recommendations that we can put to the table, especially when it comes to the issue of education relating to electricity. What are some of the solutions that we can bring forth to the table, not just be wingers, but also be solution bringers? Well, we obviously are focused with um, making sure that schools have access to electricity um, and we're not so much well-versed in the nitty-gritties of, of ESCOM and, and the very technical things. But I, what we would like to see is really the Department of Basic Education um, very committed to making sure that by 2016, the 4,000 schools that don't have access to electricity and water 
have access to electricity and water as per the regulations that were promulgated in 2013. But I think we'd also like to see in the areas, even in the areas that do have access to electricity, and that access is always consistent, and I think that, you know, we have seen that they're saying that it's not consistent, they don't always have electricity, and this affects their actual learning outcomes. Um, you know, in, in schools that are Section 21 schools, like the Gauteng schools, where the NEC has given the schools powers to be able to decide what they do with the money that they get from government, um, and they are responsible for paying their own electricity bills, I think we would really like to see, um, you know, the NEC giving them a model budget so that schools are not falling into areas and that they don't have, they're not having the electricity cut off because they're simply in areas, not because they don't have access to electricity. We really need to see a model budget from the NEC um, in Gauteng, for example, showing the schools how they can afford to pay for their, um, their electricity bills. But also, I mean, I think that, you know, I'm not sure how the billing works for schools, but we do hope that there is some sort of um, leverage, particularly with our township schools, that really are far, far stretched. And they really can't do much of the money that government gives them, um, obviously, and that's why they often fall into areas. Mm. Now, let's wrap it up with Lerato, if Lerato is still there with us. Lerato, are you still there? Yes, I'm still Well, your solutions in terms of moving forward, because this is at a pivotal stage where we are right now, and uh, we need a clear direction. Um, moving forward, uh, what we'll say is that uh, let's Let's open the renewable energy sector wider than where it is. Um, and let's see how, I mean, we know that it will work. It has worked in other countries, Latin America, in, in Germany, and others. So we need to open that industry up. And also that um, we should not, I mean, use these four solutions that uh, we've been hearing uh, especially in terms of nuclear nuclear power. I mean, one is that it's going to bankrupt the country. Why do we want to go that, that route? So we're saying that renewable energy, renewable energy here and forever. Thank you. Well, that's how we wrap it up. That's the voice of civil society looking at the issue of the crisis in South Africa. Now, look, I want to hear from you. The real reasons why Africa is struggling with power outages. What are your views? I want to hear your commentary. SMS us on plus two seven zero seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. That's plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. If you're in South Africa, it's o seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. It's an SMS number, so you. SMS us your thoughts on what you thought about today's topic. We're speaking to civil society because they were engaging in this conversation last week. And, uh, you know, when I was looking around, I didn't really hear about some of the key issues that were coming out. I just heard that they met and, yeah, they raised some issues about inclusive discussions to solve the problems. So, hey, let's create a platform where in one program they can all speak together about some of the areas of concern. And maybe we need a follow-up uh, program to this one and really look at uh, uh, just speeding up this particular process of uh, dialogue and speaking in one platform and that's what they were calling for for a more inclusive discussion to solve some of these uh, problems and uh, hey so uh, yeah remember that uh, if you're listening to us uh, go to our website if you've just been exposed to Channel Africa go to www.channelafrica.co.za that's uh, channelafrica.co.za if you want to find out more about us you can find out there there's uh, also a lot of podcasts and 
things on our website and news updates on what's happening on the continent of Africa that actually speak of uh, uh, what we're all about. So uh, go check that out. That's www.channelafrica.co.za. And also, if you want uh, more on uh, our uh, what's happening in terms of online, it, go to our uh, Channel Africa page on Facebook. It's simply titled Channel Africa. Or you can also find us on Twitter at Channel Africa One. And on our program here, we've got an African Dialogue handle. That's at African Dialogue. That's at African Dialogue. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back with our economics update. South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, uh, it's time for us to quickly move on and get our sports from Musibudi Makura. Good day, sports fans. Jerome Fox, Secretary General of FIFA, says he was aware of the 10 million US dollars donated by South Africa to CONCACAF as it went through the proper official channels. But he says FIFA never controlled the money the country donated for soccer development in the Caribbean, and this was stipulated by the letter sent by the then SAFA president, Molefa Oliphant. This comes after Fakir denied last week of any knowledge regarding the payment. On the transfer of the money to the bank. That's I can confirm. My question is the following one, then. I will not ask why you are me, because I, I'm not interested on that. Uh, my question is why this money was being transferred in 2008. Uh, why, based on that, no one at CFU, no one at CONCACAF asked on the use of this money? Why it is the fault of FIFA when, again, the money was not FIFA's money, the money, FIFA has no responsibility on this money, the money is coming from South Africa's money, and it's a, 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 a gift to the African diaspora in the Caribbean. Why it is FIFA who suddenly has to explain the misuse of the money 
based on what you have found in CMBBC on the use of this money, why it is not CFU and CONCACAF who have their own organization, they have their own uh, committees, they have an executive committee, they have a finance committee, they have all the structure in place in order to make sure that whenever money is transferred on their accounts, they should follow the use of the money. Pekhomi Dubilinkune says he expects Bafana Bafana's culture of always striving for victory to be on show on Saturday's 2017 Africa Cup of Nations qualifying opener against Gambia. The two nations clash in a Group M match at the Moses Mabida Stadium in Durban at 3 p.m. Central African time. Kune is aware the team is under pressure to perform after a disappointing Kosafa Cup campaign on home soil, but the outgoing Kazi Chiefs goalkeeper says the team is ready to give a good account of themselves. To be quite honest, I don't know much about them, but uh, the technical team obviously should know a lot about them and we will definitely watch their DVDs and they will do more research about them and they will tell the players what to expect. I think given us as players, as professional as we are, we have to go on uh, social media and do a bit of a research about them because I heard that they're bringing more than 10 European players. So it's going to be a tough game and a very important game for us to to win, to start uh, on the high. On to volleyball news. The Volleyball Africa Cup of Nations Championship gets underway in Nairobi later today. Teams expected to participate in the competition at the Moy International Sports Complex Kasarani include Tunisia, Botswana, Algeria, Cameroon, Mauritius, Morocco as well as Senegal. Channel Africa's Francis Motegas in Nairobi, Kenya and filed this report. The Kenyan team under head coach Davilungahau acknowledges that the North and West Africans in particular pose the ultimate threat for Kenya in the qualifier contest. The Kenyan camp was boosted by the arrival of France-based Johnny Washu and Braxidis Agala Gadambi, as well as Masimoim, who plies her trade in Finland. On to Netball News, Netball South Africa have announced a team that will do duty at next week's Diamond Challenge taking place in Durban. South Africa will go up against Uganda, Malawi as well as Zambia at the Ugu Sports Centre in Margate from the 16th to the, 29, to, the 20, to the 19th of June. All teams will also represent Africa at the upcoming World Cup in Sydney, Australia. Netball South Africa President Mimim Tatwa says it's important that they do well at that tournament. Look, we take the Diamond Challenge very seriously. First of all, it's hosted here in South Africa, so we wouldn't want uh, to lose uh, to other countries uh, when we're playing uh, in our own backyard. And remember that when the Diamond Challenge was first uh, launched in 2012, we, we won it. Also, uh, last year when we faced it, we also won it. So we, we want to make sure that we keep that record. We, we don't want to be uh, losing out to countries when they come and play in, in our own country. And finally, it was a mixed bag of results for South African wheelchair tennis players on day one of the Diego Open in, Car- in Korea on Tuesday. Karen Losh, General Manager at Wheelchair Tennis South Africa, has details. In the ladies' draw, Katata Monjani, she was up against Paulina Shakirova from Poland and she did very well. She had a good match. She's looking healthy and strong and she had a comfortable victory in her first round. Also in court in the ladies match in the ladies draw was Mariska Fenter. She played an extremely competitive match but unfortunately went down. Um Tando also from South Africa, was up against the fourth seed Shakorn Panisat from Korea and didn't have such a great match and went down in the first round. Lucas Sitole up against Anthony Cottrell in the first round. 
the man he beat in the finals to take the career open fee, uh, 6-2-6-1, um, to secure his place in the second round um, of the De Gaulle Open. The Zion Sports News at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, that's how we wrap up our program. Hey, the question we're asking today, what are the real reasons Africa is struggling with power outages? As an ordinary citizen on the continent, what do you think it is? SMS us your views outside South Africa. SMS us on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. That's plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. If you are contacting us and SMSing us from South Africa, it's on O seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero without the uh, plus two seven uh, code. Well, that's how we wrap up our program today. Tomorrow we'll be looking at uh, the South Africa AIDS Conference. It's the seventh edition, so a lot of the conversation is taking place in South Africa around that particular conference. So we'll be actually broadcasting into Durban tomorrow where the conference is taking place and speaking to some of uh, those who are participating within that particular conference. So join us at the same time. Just a reminder, we come to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. You also can interact with us, as I mentioned, from the beginning of the program. You can uh, look at us up on uh, our website, www.channelafrica.co.za, or you can Facebook us on our page, Channel Africa. Tweet us at Channel Africa 1, the numeric 1, at Channel Africa, the numeric 1, at Channel Africa 1, or you can uh, tweet us at African Dialogue. That's how we wrap up the program. Until tomorrow, uh, God bless. We're going to end it with uh, Papa Wimba.